This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. When you think of a palm tree, what comes to mind? Do you have an immediate vision or memory or even a strong opinion in the positive or the negative? Today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Jason Dewees, palm expert, head horticulturist for Flora Grub Gardens in San Francisco, California, and author of Designing with Palms, a new title out this month from Timber Press, written by Jason and photographed by Caitlin Atkinson. Jason is a lifelong lover and student of palms, not just one or two iconic palms, but the whole scope of the diverse family. And even if you're not a palm lover or a palm grower, I think you might be surprised by this mini education. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much. You have this new book, Designing with Palms, which even as perhaps a non-palm lover, which we will talk about later, it is a beautiful book. As Flora Grubb describes in her introduction to the book, she talks about what a palm can do. You clearly have this infectious love for palms, which is expressed throughout the book. What does that mean, what a palm can do? Share with us some of your infectious palm love, Jason. Well, palms are a group of plants, a large family of plants with several characteristics when it comes to design that no other plant group can match. One of the functions that a palm can perform in a garden space, a landscape, um, is to create a vertical element, a palm tree, that uh, does not steal light or, or sun from the space, but still generates the sense of upward movement and provides a marker within uh, a spatial volume. Um, just the other day on Instagram, I saw a beautiful photograph of a sunken garden in Australia with two tall palm trees growing up out of it. And without those two palms, that space wouldn't be nearly as exciting and alluring as it is. That's one really interesting way in which palms function. People talk about palm trees, and of course they're not really trees, but they do resemble trees in our minds, and they give some of the benefits that a tree can give to a, a garden design. Mm -hmm. I want you to take me back to sometime in your past, whenever it was, that you realized you really loved this family. Describe whatever that palm was and whatever that experience was that made you say, I wanna, I wanna study this group and love this group. When it comes to wanting to study this group, I think that the end of high school was when I really um, embraced a love of palms. I, I can trace the interest in palms back to uh, kindergarten when my mother acquired an indoor plant from a family friend and uh, took care of it. And I became fascinated with this small little palm tree in a pot. Um, and I think I was fascinated because I had seen palms in South Florida, where my mother was from, many times on visits to, to grandparents. Um, and there in that pot was the same plant, but miniaturized. So at age five, I was, I was intrigued. And at, at age eight, when we went to Miami for uh, Christmas break, I 
got fixated. I, I started to really doodle palms everywhere. And my grandfather was a, an inspiration. He loved his garden. He was uh, originally from the South and moved down to Miami during the land boom of the 20s. And I think for him, having this large plot of land was a fulfillment. Uh, and he showed me the banana patch, and he took me around in the wheelbarrow to the tomato patch and showed me his favorite palm tree, the royal palm. And that, that third grade visit um, certainly got me fixated. And when I went back to my classroom in the, in, in the winter, I saw palm trees out the window of our classroom. It was like suddenly I saw them. I hadn't seen them before. But there in front of my desk was this quartet of palms uh, swaying in the wind in San Francisco. Um, but the end of high school was when I was studying California natural history. Um, I had always been very interested in California native plants and native trees and carried the Pacific Coast tree finder around with me whenever I was out in nature. Um, and I went to Miami for spring break with my family. And at that point, I had already been stoking this interest in palms um, in school, in high school. And there in, on my step-grandmother's desk was Palms of the World, the only real reference book available at that point, um, published in 1960, a beautiful black and white photographed uh, encyclopedia of palms. And I had a tool that she gave me uh, and that I took back to San Francisco. And I was able to suddenly really understand the various palms around me in California and to understand that there wasn't just a pair of palm species that planted, that there were far more. And that, that's what really opened it up for me. And I discovered the International Palm Society, became a, a young member, um, helped to volunteer in the Lakeside Palmetum uh, in Oakland, downtown Oakland, um, beside Lake Merritt, and discovered, wow, there are dozens and dozens of palm species that we can grow here in Northern California and coastal Bay Area. I love that story of the book on your grandmother's desk and the, the fact that this opens up this entire world to you. That description of finally putting together that you saw a palm in Florida and then you saw a palm in California and that they were a similar thing. And once you recognize them, start to know names, they become friends, and we see them everywhere. I want to explore a little bit something that you bring up in the book, which really struck me because I have already admitted to you that I, I think I fall in that group of especially California native plant lovers. I don't come from California, but I love California native plants. I love our native landscape. And so there's this kind of moralistic scorn or dismissal that we take on of like, oh, palms, they're, they're not ours, which I think is unfair. And I think it's narrow-minded. I think it closes us off to what is fabulous in our botanical world especially if we use it carefully. Talk a little bit about the symbolism and cultural narrative that is embedded in the just the iconography of a palm tree and how that's both working in the favor of the plant, but it's also, it kind of hobbles this group from being seen more broadly. Yes, uh, palms are, are plants. They're, they're not just symbols. And the palm family has 2,500 species. Wow. Say that again. The palm family has 2,500 species. How many genera in there? Uh, about 300, I believe. Okay. It's a pretty wildly diverse plant family. It ranges from tiny understory plants that might be mistaken for a fern 
to the tallest monocot in the world, the Andean wax palm. A, a palm can be a shrub. A palm can be a vine. Palm trees are what we think of when we think of palms, and they are iconic. Any five-year-old can doodle a palm tree. And in the book, I talk a little bit about how even painters who aspire to tremendous realism often skip over depicting the palm correctly. It's very hard to capture something with such complexity in, in its movement and, and yet with such simplicity in, in its icon status. Um, I want to talk briefly about a California native palm that we don't consider a California native. Guadalupe Island is one of the California islands. It's a volcanic island 150 miles west of northern Baja, California. It's considered a part of the California floristic province. It's an island that has um, a variety of the Monterey pine, for example. It has the island oak, which is limited to the California islands. Uh, it has its own species of cypress. It has ceanothus. It has California sagebrush. And it has the Guadalupe palm, which is Brahea edulis. The Guadalupe palm, to me, is a paleobotanical memory. Palms, oaks, and pines frequently grow together in North America. Uh, if you go to the southeast, you'll see uh, swaths of palms beneath pines and oaks. Uh, in Mexico as well, the combination, the trio of palms, pines, and oaks is very common. And it turns out, within the California floristic province, which is that area of the west coast defined by the Mediterranean climate and by the peculiar assemblage of species that predominates uh, from southwest Oregon to northwest Baja and west of the Sierra Nevada and the Peninsula Ranges. That palm, the Brahea edulis, the Guadalupe palm, is native. And it loves the conditions of coastal and even inland California. It's extremely drought tolerant tolerates our coastal fogs. It tolerates the heat and the cold of the inland valleys. It's a plant that deservedly be called native. It's uh, a plant that is just as native as some of the other California island plants that we gladly plant as natives, like the uh, Santa Cruz Island ironwood, or the, otherwise known as the Catalina ironwood. So I, I want to talk about palms as plants and not just as symbols. Certainly they can be useful in garden design as a symbol. They carry a lot of meaning with them. In California, palms have often been symbols of wealth, marketing tools, uh, certainly in the 19th century and the early 20th century, as Jared Farmer argues in his book, Trees in Paradise. Uh, the function of the palm is to signify a place of beauty and wealth, of mild climate, um, and even in Northern California, I just drove through the Sacramento Valley and saw palms signifying a certain landedness, a certain fertility. That is an even older signification of palms, where in the desert of Mesopotamia, you rely on the date palm for food and as a signifier of water, a place where there is permanent water in the desert. And our earliest Western agricultural traditions arise out of the range of the date palm, where date palms are crucial 
plants, among the earliest fruit-bearing trees cultivated by humans in, in the Western sphere. Uh, and so I think that there's a, a really deep signification or symbolism uh, that palms bring to a landscape, especially in a place like California, where water is so uh, precious. Mm -hmm. So the signification of wealth means that the, the palm gets a bad rap sometimes. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's inappropriately placed. It's used just to say, we're fancy. Right. <laughs> when, and it doesn't look so fancy. Right. You know, it looks tacky if it's, if it's treated that way. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that has happened to it is that it became this almost caricature of itself when it's overused. Exactly. And the more I was reading the book, the more I had really lovely memories of encounters with native palms throughout the United States that were really happy memories of visiting the Keys in Florida, of my mother's last garden in the low country in South Carolina, of being with an aunt in Arizona who has lots of palms in, um, and I'm, I'm guessing some of them native, and now I want to know more. <laughs> Going back to what you were saying about the Guadalupe palm, that would then make California having two native palms. Is that correct? In a biogeographic sense, mm -hmm. we have our, our Guadalupe palm. And in our political sense, we have the desert fan palm or the California fan palm, which is from the Sonoran floristic province, the desert floristic province. Mm -hmm. And that is the palm native to the Palm Springs area, Anza Borrego, also Joshua Tree. Yeah. Um, and, and that palm performs differently in, in, Cal in the coastal parts of California. It's not nearly so happy away from the inland heat um, as the Guadalupe palm is. How many palms are native to North America proper? Gosh, I wish I could give you the exact number. Um, I'm going to throw out... 17 species. Okay. And where do they predominate? They, the by far the greatest number of native palms in uh, the United States is in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, there are at least 11, perhaps more species. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because Florida dips into the subtropics. And so the Florida Keys, for example, carry a number of those species and they do not extend onto the peninsula itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the royal palm is native to Florida. The palmetto, sable palmetto, of course, is the state tree of Florida as well as the state tree of South Carolina. Um, but palms range all the way from North Carolina through South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, all the way even to southeast Oklahoma, southernmost Arkansas. Hmm. Uh, and then Texas has a couple of different palm species. One native only to Texas, the Texas palmetto, which is a, a larger, beefier version of the palmetto of South Carolina and Florida. Um, so there, there are about four or five species that are native outside of uh, those southeastern states. And then Hawaii has one genus that's highly diverse, mm. uh, a very beautiful fan palm called uh, the lolu uh, prichardia. And those range from sea level all the way up to 4,200 feet elevation in um, the cloud forest areas of Hawaii. Um, so there are a number of palms native to, to North America and to the United States. You said earlier in our conversation that um, we call them palm trees, but they're not trees. Describe the characteristics by which we know a palm to be a palm and some of its botanical technicalities. Palms always have complex leaves, 
either in the shape of a fan or a feather. So plants that get confused with palms often are those plants that have a crown of leaves on top of a trunk. Yucca rostrata, the beaked yucca, is a classic uh, example of a plant one might think was a palm. But if you look at the leaf of a yucca, it's shaped like a spear. If you look at the leaf of a California fan palm, it has a fan, a folded fan shape in the blade portion of the leaf. Mm. Uh, if you look at the leaf of a Canary Island date palm or a true date palm, it has the shape of a feather. It has a, a central rib with leaflets emerging from that rib, pretty much in the shape of a feather. So that complexity of the leaf to begin with is, is a tell. It mm -hmm. helps you know, I'm, I'm probably looking at a palm. Um, and then if you can see where the leaves emerge from the top of the stem, you will see that it, the leaf emerges first as a spear-shaped object, and then it unfolds. Palms all have folding le leaves, or unfolding leaves to be mm -hmm. precise. Uh, and that, that plication, that, that foldedness, uh, is a defining feature of palms as well. And then palm, any mature palm will have some kind of stem that feels woody if you're to poke it with your fingernail. Mm -hmm. Now, these tiny little understory palms uh, that look almost like ferns, those stems are buried in the ground, and so you might have to dig a little bit to find them. Um, but in general, things like bananas are not palms. If you look at how a banana pushes its leaf out, it unfurls like a flag or like a poster that's mm -hmm. been rolled up. Mm -hmm. Same is true for the giant bird of paradise, a, a very commonly grown landscape plant here in coastal California. Um, its new leaf unfurls. It too has a woody stem, but um, but it's that unfurling of the leaf, and it's not a folding process or mm -hmm. unfolding process. Sago palm, is that a palm or is that a cycad? Perfect question about the imposters of the palms. The imposters, and there is this whole wonderful section on it in the book to help you start to get a sense of what is a palm, what is not a palm. Sago palm is a cycad. And cycads are gymnosperms, meaning that they're more closely related to pine trees and ginkgo trees and ephedra than to flowering plants. And the way to really look at a plant called a sago palm and determine it's not a palm is that the way the leaf emerges is almost in the manner of a fern unfurling like a fiddlehead. That fiddlehead structure matures and gels into this vinyl textured feather-shaped leaf, but you'll never see that coming out of a palm. Okay. The other thing is that cycads produce cones, and, and mostly those cones come out of the center of, of the plant. Mm -hmm. um, and they really do, in a way, look like a giant spruce cone. So that's also a telltale uh, detail about these imposters called cycads, which are marvelous plants, by the way, and they're ancient seed-bearing plants. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Jason Dewees, head horticulturist at Flora Grub Gardens in San Francisco, and author of Design with Palms. Whether you love palms or not, Jason challenges us to see beyond the iconography, sometimes balmy and bold, sometimes tacky and misused. 
to really see this diverse and ancient plant family, a true giving tree, as he calls it, that is much older than us and has been with us in our evolution from the beginnings. There are lessons to be learned there. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Here's what's getting me in this conversation with Jason. This book, his knowledge, and his love of this plant family, they really, and I mean really, called me out on a few of my own biases and blind spots. Two weeks ago, I would have said I was not a palm person. And then, after reading the book and enjoying Jason's passion and real knowledge, it was clear to me that while I might not plant palms in my dry, heavily native plant, drought-tolerant habitat garden, for me to stick myself into a closed-minded corner and be all judgmental gardener about this ancient and vast plant family is ridiculous and short-sighted and wrong-headed. A bias is a bias is a bias. And as that wonderful old bumper sticker read, a mind is like a parachute and it works best when it's open. Palms have evolved and radiated and speciated across just about our whole big beautiful planet through ice ages and big climate changes. And here they are, tough and lovely as ever. They have plenty to teach me, and it's always good to be reminded that I have plenty to learn. I want my garden to be an ecological contributor. I want to garden in my watershed, with my soil, and for my wildlife, as well as my own sense of loveliness. But I can do all of that and still be open-minded. Intentionality and knowledge, they cannot be underestimated. So onward. Do you ever find yourself running into your own garden blind spots? I'd love to hear. Head over to cultivatingplace.com and send me a message. Sign up for the monthly of You From Here newsletter. These are worthwhile conversations. And after all, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have just such conversations about these things we love that might trip us up and that connect us. Together, we gardeners and nature lovers make a difference for the better. And now back to Jason and his deep knowledge of and love for palms. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Jason Dewees, palm expert and die-hard palm lover. He sees the palm forests and each tree. Well, as he explains, they aren't really trees. Welcome back. Palms are a family of plants. They are flowering plants. They are monocots. So they are in the same division of flowering plants as grasses and bromeliads and orchids and yuccas and agaves. Mm -hmm. They're one of the earliest monocots. The fossil record goes back at least to 89 million years ago. Um, And I was listening to a podcast that uh, on which a, a paleobotanist was interviewed, and she was talking about the fossil record of palms in Wyoming. And in that moment, in the in the rock layers, um, you could see that palms had radiated out into more niches than other flowering plants at that stage, mm. which is very interesting to me, that a, a plant family that we now think of as being so limited in uh, its 
tropical associations was at that moment when Wyoming was probably quite wet and tropical, mm-hmm. um, it was venturing out and starting to compete with the conifers and the ferns that were dominating at that point. Um, so they're fairly early in the, in the development of the monocotte group of flowering plants. As a true flowering and seed-bearing plant, one of the things you do talk about when you go into the different specifics of each species that you give us an encyclopedia of, you describe the, the beautiful inflorescences and then fruits that follow. Describe, describe that structure in a palm. Palms flowers are born on complex structures called inflorescences, which are big branches that emerge either from the crown or below the crown of leaves at the top of the stem. Palm stems have generally one growth bud at the top with, that produces the new leaves, and then uh, axillary buds that produce the flowers. There are a few palms that do, in fact, branch above ground, but they're, they're very unusual and certainly never seen in California and, and not cold hardy. Um, so they're seen in Florida and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, those inflorescences emerge and produce thousands or bear thousands of flowers. Uh, they become feasts for pollinators. I had a, uh, outside my window at Florgrub Gardens, where I work, um, was a specimen Guadalupe palm in a box. And I watched it flower over several years uh, repeatedly. And it was amazing to see the number of pollinators visiting the inflorescence. Um, there were honeybees, of course. Uh, but there were also native bumblebees. There were flies. Uh, there were all kinds of animals taking mm-hmm. advantage of this plant. In addition, um, each year a morning dove would set a nest in the, in the leaf of this palm. So the, the inflorescence was a really important element of that plant in terms of its ecological relationships. Mm-hmm. And I was reading about the native desert fan palm of California, Washingtonia filifera, and its many associations um, generally involve uh, the f- inflorescence and the following infructescence, which of course is the pollinated flowers turning into fruits. Um, many different birds, like the western bluebird, the mountain bluebird, um, use those fruits. And so do vertebrates, including uh, coyotes and foxes. Um, they eat these seeds or fruits, and then the plant gets distributed beyond that original oasis in the Coachella Valley. So the infructescence can also be quite a showy. Uh, element of a palm. In the book, uh, we have a photograph of an infructescence of Washingtonia filifera in one of the oases that lies astride the San Andreas Fault in Mm. the Coachella Valley. It's really the classic oasis look. There's a pond, there's a marsh, there's there's a beautiful boardwalk that you can take through the Thousand Palms Oasis Preserve. And outside the skirt of dead leaves beneath the crown were these beautiful necklaces of dark brownish-black fruits. And in one of the pieces I read recently, there was a gorgeous photograph of western bluebirds feeding on those uh, fruits of a, of a Washingtonia filifera. That's great. Um, and each individual flower on a palm is, is not generally very showy, although there are some that are pretty to look at close up. Um, but it's that profusion of flowers that can be very impressive. And uh, one of the plants that we grow here a lot on the West Coast is the Mexican blue palm, which is native to northernmost Baja. 
uh, and actually native to within 10 miles of the California border. It not only has a spectacularly uh, silvery blue foliage crown, but the, the flower stalk that emerges, the inflorescence, uh, pops out of the crown and then hangs down like a garland. Uh, and sometimes there's many as six or seven of these inflorescences. And, and they make this arch out of the crown and then fall almost vertically. Some can be as long as 15 feet on mm. really older trees. Um, so we don't think of palms as flowering plants in the sense of a, a rose. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly they can, they can add a lot um, with, their, with their big inflorescences. And, and then the fruits of palms um, can be really colorful. And this is particularly true among a lot of the tropical palms where uh, the fruits can be bright red or yellow um, or black against red. Um, we have a commonly grown group of palms called bamboo palms. Um, these are shrubby palms generally. They grow mm-hmm. like a bamboo uh, with multiple thin stems from the same rootstock. Like a clumping bamboo, though. They don't run. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they often have very colorful fruits, um, orange, red, black. And the, the inflorescent stalk changes color as it begins to ripen into an infructescence. And there might be a contrast between the black and the red. Um, so there's, there's a lot to be said for color in palms arising from the inflorescence and the infructescence. And so... The coconut is a palm. Yes. And the date is a palm. Yes. Are there other well-known edible fruit palms besides those two? Palms are the third most economically important plant family to humans. Yeah. You you say this in the book, and, and you said it a couple of times. That is pretty impressive. I did not know that. It's It's a really amazing fact, and it makes you understand how disparate um, human views of palms can be. Mm-hmm. Our northern latitude Eurocentric view of palms is as symbols of wealth or leisure, vacation. I mean, I think now for those of us in these northern latitudes in North America, leisure is is the the symbol that that is most powerful mm-hmm. um, associated with the palm. But for other people in in much of the tropical world, a palm looks like an incredibly useful tool or a, a really rich giving tree, uh, a plant that provides starch, a crucial part of the diet, a, a plant that uh, provides a sort of honey-like substance, a plant that you can build your house out of, a plant that uh, will provide water during times of drought or just when you want a different flavor. Um, coconuts are so crucial to the settlement of atolls in the Pacific and probably even Indian Oceans, without palms, without the coconut palm, um, it's hard to imagine how people could have lived and or can live mm-hmm. on low-lying atolls in, in the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. because there aren't surface sources of water. Water comes from the sky and then percolates immediately into the limestone and coral rock and sand. Um, to have a coconut tree thriving year after year with abundant uh, coconut crops means you've got a source of water during those two weeks when in the pause between thunderstorms, not to mention all the other uses of the coconut. Among the fruits that are well-known elsewhere are the peach palm fruit, which the peach palm is a semi-domesticated 
palm from uh, South America and Central America. It's, uh, its original habitat is actually unknown. It was that useful from an early moment in human settlement of the tropical Americas. And this is a staple fruit. It, it has a kind of starchy flavor. It's a bit like a potato. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's everywhere in tropical America, hmm. wet tropical America. One of the very few palms used for its chemical properties is the betel nut. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. And so the betel nut is a tropical palm from Southeast Asia. Did not know that betel was a palm. Isn't That's that, great. Yeah. yeah. And it's, so it's matched with uh, a type of black pepper leaf, a, a, a member of the black pepper family, mm-hmm. and with a little bit of lime, and together... Uh, they form the the betel nut, which is a mild narcotic. Most palms' defenses are not chemical. They are mechanical. The the palm family tends to be very fibrous and tends to have a lot of um, spininess and armature, um, although certainly many palms don't. But their their sheer fibrousness uh, prevents them from from getting eaten too much. Mm -hmm. They don't use chemical defenses as much as other plant families. And then, of course, palms are a vegetable source. So most palms have edible bud. The primary bud of the palm is huge. So this is the heart of palm. Hearts of palm. Exactly. And is that can you de- is that derived from all kinds of palms? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So um, the current market is uh, mostly Brazil, uh, where a genus Euterpe is um, exploited for hearts of palm, um, and palms can grow either as single trunk plants or single stem plants or as multi-stem plants in the manner of a clumping bamboo. Uh, And so if you're harvesting from a multi-stem species, you're not killing the tree. Mm -hmm. If you do harvest from a single stem species, you do kill that individual tree. And this isn't a great moral problem if you're you're treating these things as agricultural Mm -hmm. subjects. So I've, for example, had a friend just pull the bud out of a young coconut and offer it to me, and it's just a tasty little vegetable treat, mm. even a coconut. And a friend, Scott Zona, who is a palm botanist, tells me that uh, he's tasted many different um, experimental palm buds, parts of palm, and one of them that's really tasty is the royal palm, which we consider this absolutely majestic tree. It's the tree that lines royal palm way in Palm Beach that brings this tremendous sense of uh, grandeur to, mm-hmm. to your journey to this, you know, wonderful community on the on the Atlantic Ocean, um, but but the, it's a very fast growing palm and it has a delicious bud and it would be a very easy crop to cultivate just as a bunch of seedlings yeah. over and over again. One of the things that strikes me about this book and is coming up as you're you're talking about um, the different fruits and the different locations and um, uses for these plants is the great fun that you and Caitlin Atkinson, the photographer, must have had traveling to see these palms in person, kind of experience them, which you evoke beautifully in the different ways they move and sound and what they do in a landscape. But before we get to that, what made you write this book? Well, as a professional plant nerd, um, I, which probably comes with a name tag and I, stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I'm part of the association. <laughs> when I discovered the great variety of palms that I could grow in my home territory of the Bay Area, I saw a way that palms could function in landscapes that, that they don't normally do. So often you see the very commonly grown uh, Washingtonia robusta, for example, or even Canary Island date palm, which is Phoenix canariensis. 
placed in a spot where it's ultimately not going to work, or it's going to crowd a small bungalow, or it's going to, in the case of the Washingtonia Robusta, the Mexican fan palm, grow so tall that within 20 or 30 years, it'll, it'll look like a power pole and yeah. with a tiny tuft of leaves way up at the top. And yes, they, they can be really beautiful, those particular species, but when they're placed wrong, it made my heart sink. And to see all of these other really worthy species with all these other forms and, and sizes and colors in, in that time after high school um, was so thrilling because it, it, it brought me um, a full palette of ideas for, for using them in, mm-hmm. in landscapes. When I moved into my role as horticulturist at Flora Grub Gardens, I got to work with um, people who were putting together a beautiful garden center every week using the palms that we grow ourselves down in San Diego County. And so I was able to see other people's creativity involved with this plant family that I love so much. And before that, too, I'd been collaborating as a, as a freelancer with designers and mm-hmm. talking about how individual species are going to perform over time, what they're bringing to that particular space, and how to place them, and, and, and why to use one species over another. And so that's been a lot of my work over the last decade at Flora Grub Gardens, collaborating with designers and advising them on how these plants perform and, and giving them ideas for species that will provide something to the landscape. Using palms as a large-scale ground cover, for example, a palm that doesn't generally make much of a trunk can be a really lovely large-scale ground cover. There's a, a big, gorgeous foliage plant that you see a lot of in moist areas. It's called gunnera. Gunnera is deciduous, the one that we use, is deciduous in the wintertime and also pretty thirsty. Uh, there are palms that you can use to create that same dramatic effect, but without as much water and that are evergreen, of course. Mm-hmm. Palms are all evergreen. Entering into this, this design-centric garden center with, with seasoned designers, um, collaborating with them and watching their work unfold, made it clear to me that there was a place for a book that gives garden designers uh, the tools to use palms in the landscape or to use palms even better in the landscape. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a lot of us palm aficionados are plant nerds. And we often will plant our gardens based on the excitement that we have about these individual species. And, And we can be collectors and we can fill our gardens with palms with less of an eye to the spaces and the the feelings that those spaces evoke. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to also bring to the plant nerd world a perspective on how beautiful gardens can be when palms are more judiciously used. Yeah. Um, So, you know, one example, just a really simple example, uh, in Northern California especially, one will often see palms used in a very architectural fashion. Almost like statues. Exactly. so the classic case, uh, Palm Drive is your entry to the heart of the Stanford campus, and it's perfectly aligned Canary Island date palms in an alley. And it's a gorgeous, just breathtaking view. But this is not the only way to use palms. And uh, looking at what they do in habitat, looking at the other plants that they grow with uh, is a way, one way, to think about how to use them in more creative fashion. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Our guest today, Jason Deweese, has spent his life enjoying, studying, and advocating for the plant family we know as palms. In his new book, Design with Palms, he provides a history, a love letter, and a tool for really seeing what a palm can do in a landscape that other plants can't do. He literally traveled much of the palm growing world with photographer Caitlin Atkinson to bring us lush images and deeper understanding about these plants he loves. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. It's Jennifer. Hey, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening and responding and subscribing to this program. It's a passion project, and those are things best shared in community, don't you think? Here's a phrase from this conversation with Jason that I have written down in my journal. Paleo-botanical memory. Think about that for a second. It's loaded with interesting information, imagery, and ideas. And it's kind of fun to say. Paleo-botanical memory. The fact that we humans have evolved with palms, that the date palm was one of the earliest known fruit-bearing trees to be cultivated by humans. The fact that the sight of them across an arid landscape signified food and the presence of water. These are powerful imprints in our own historical cultural memory. And the very notion of how much history and cultural significance is carried in plants that we carried with us, sometimes we're so accustomed to how we see things that we forget the meta-level thinking and seeing. I look around my garden, my neighborhood of gardens, and then into the native wildlands, and when I consider what is the paleo-botanical memory held there, it's a whole different view. It is beyond my mother's South Carolina garden with palms, beyond my memories of traveling through Southeast Asia for six months as a young woman with my husband-to-be, beyond the red sticky beetle nut chewed by the women and men there, and beyond the coconut cake I adore for my birthday. It's an ancient and compelling companioning of plants to all life on our planet. That's a perspective worth sitting with. Now, back to our conversation with Jason and the song of the palms he is sharing with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Jason Deweese, author of Design with Palms, out now from Timber Press, a welcome virtual getaway in the middle of winter and a great inspiration year-round. Welcome back. Clearly, you traveled all over the world to see these palms, to talk to other palm growers and propagators and collectors, and to kind of meet these plants where they live the most beautifully. Were there maybe one or two highlights of places you got to visit that you'd always wanted to visit? I want to talk a little bit about how revelatory the collaboration with Caitlin Atkinson was. Yeah. When we embarked on the first photo shoot in Northern California in a beautiful garden in the wine country of Sonoma County. We, of course, had a conversation about, well, what do you think about this topic? And to Caitlin, the palm was sort of this, she didn't really ever understand why they were used. And I think that's 
a, a natural response given how often they're misused in um, Northern California landscapes, where she's also from. Um, and over the course of our collaboration, um, she gradually saw how palms are used in other parts of the United States. And given that she was doing the photography, she was looking very carefully at them. Mm -hmm. and, um, and by the end, I think, you know, she acquired an appreciation for the, the group, especially because she learned more about them and she saw them uh, used in really beautiful ways. And in the meantime, I learned a tremendous amount from Caitlin because she has a long uh, history of visiting some of the most beautiful gardens in the United States and in France. And um, she provided so many ideas and um, kept the conversation going in a way that um, I can't imagine anyone else doing. It was, yeah. it was just so gratifying to, to have a collaborator with such tremendous strengths in addition to her exquisite photography. So we went first to gardens in the Bay Area. And then as a lava flow from Kilauea was approaching uh, an area where I knew I was going to want to photograph uh, in, I think it was November of 2014, I whisked her away to the Big Island. Yeah. <laughs> I said, we must do this uh, before that road gets cut off and it becomes much more difficult to get where I need to go. Mm -hmm. So we, um, we spent a few days at a friend's house and garden in uh, the Puna district of the Big Island. Uh, Hale Mohalu is the name of the house. And it's a gorgeous garden. Um, I think it's 20 acres. Um, and we spent mornings photographing there and then um, afternoons photographing on, in other locations on the Big Island. So mm -hmm. we got the really intense tropical gardens of the Big Island where you can pretty much grow any palm, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on your elevation. Um, and then from there, uh, our next big trip in my memory was South Carolina. South Carolina is the Palmetto State. Palms are quite natural to South Carolinians. They live in the coastal plain area, especially, um, but they're cultivated up even to the Piedmont. I believe there are four species of palms native to the state. And yet South Carolina gets quite cold some winters. The two winters preceding our visit uh, dipped down into the teens, even in Charleston, which mm -hmm. is right on the coast. Um, and being an urban person, it was really exciting for me to see palms grown in Charleston and how they're grown and how they're used in informal gardens and how they're used in um, coastal slough areas with giant live oaks and Spanish moss and just a very soft, casual approach, um, scattering palms underneath these beautiful wizened oak trees. Um, so South Carolina was a real education for me, learning from local uh, palm brokers how these different species perform in this climate so different from coastal California, um, and, and just seeing the sort of cultural appreciation for the group of plants mm -hmm. and, and, and seeing their native habitats and seeing uh, beyond Florida, the the association that I mentioned before between pines, palms, and oaks, and other really interesting uh, evergreen and deciduous plants, yeah. um, that one of the most touching gardens that we visited uh, was in North Augusta, where um, the the plant the plant palette was tremendously diverse, uh, a palette that one could 
deploy in Portland, Oregon, as well as in South Carolina or in California or even Virginia Beach. Um, very hardy palms used amidst uh, some of the most beautiful conifers mm. and deciduous trees um, you could hope to see. It just a, and and the palms really like a like an accent, like a a subtle piece of the puzzle. Um, that that was what I was after in some ways mm-hmm. was that that extreme where where palms are kind of in supporting roles, even though they have this geometry and this. Uh, this charisma and this um, attention-grabbing form—they—they um, they can also mesh beautifully with these other plants that have finer foliage and and be a nice counterpoint. And mm. of course, some of the palms that have a shrub form uh, are particularly suited to this function of background players. Um, another garden where. Um, we photographed in the Bay Area is the Ruth Bancroft Garden uh, in Walnut Creek, uh, the East Bay of, of uh, the Bay Area. And that is a garden that is dedicated to dry growing plants. Um, and one of the groups of plants there is rosette succulents like uh, aloes mm-hmm. and forcreas that produce a, a kind of palm-like form uh, they've got trunks, and they have a crown of, of leaves in a, in a kind of rosette. But those leaves are simple. They're spear-shaped or triangular and succulent. And they don't get very tall. Meanwhile, the old uh, farm trees, ranch trees, are cedars uh, and eucalyptus and pines. And the palms in that garden perform a really interesting function of Bridging the mm. the low rosettes and the and the rosette treelets of the aloes and the forcreas and the yuccas, um, and these complex crowns, these jagged crowns of the big old atlas cedars along the drive, uh, and the palms are taller and somewhat more complex, and yet still rather geometric and identifiably monocot, so yeah. to speak, like the yuccas and the aloes. And I think in that garden. One, you get the sense of just how drought tolerant they are. And two, you get their sense of movement and sound because it's a it's a relatively um, it's a it's a lush looking garden, even though it's drought tolerant. Um, but there isn't very much movement mm. given the plant palette that Ruth loved. And the palms provide that. they they're the ones that, she has some grasses, but but not as many. And the palms provide that movement in the wind and rustling sound that you think of with a palm. That's a beautiful point. And, and I think one of the great contributions that palms do make is, is the different sound provided by each species. Mm-hmm. Each one is its own instrument. And some are even silent. This Mexican blue palm that I mentioned with these garlands of gorgeous flowers rarely gets blown around vigorously enough to brush against itself. It's got very stiff leaves, but so many of the other palms make these wonderful rustling sounds. One of the photographs in the book is is intended to convey uh, the relaxing quality of uh, the palm rustling in the wind, and that's in Flora Grubb's own garden, where Clara palm functions as an overhead protection to a lounging area in the, in the front of the, the garden. Um, yeah, I, I just love the sounds of palms yeah. and, and each different one being its own sound. It is true. There's a, there's a sort of fixed quality to those succulents, you know, in a, um, 
in a dry garden in California, whether it's the Ruth Bancroft Garden or the Desert Garden at the Huntington, um, the palms provide a sense of m movement and what's going on with the weather. And uh, I just, I, I love it so much. It, that truly does feel like bringing vacation home. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, as much as I might resist the stereotyped uh, symbolic value, when the senses are engaged in that way, um, I, I'm seduced. I'll, I'll, I'll embrace that bringing vacation home theme <laughs> for sure. Is there anything else you want very much to share with us? I want to honor again the, the question that you posed about highlights of, of traveling for the book. Mm -hmm. um, one of the really beautiful things to me is seeing palms in habitat. And I can't recommend enough going to see the the desert fan palm in its oasis in uh, the Coachella Valley and uh, Anza Borrego State Park in Joshua Tree um, at the Thousand Palms Oasis and above all in what's called the Indian Canyons above Palm Springs, which are really the reason Palm Springs is called Palm Springs. It's like seeing the redwoods. It's just one of the most magnificent natural features of California. Um, in Florida, we visited um, Bahia Honda State Park, which is in the Lower Keys. It's just beyond the Seven Mile Bridge. And it is a very, of course, like all the Keys, a very low uh, limestone island. This one happens to have a beautiful beach. And it is home to, I believe, two species of palms, one of which is Cocothrinex argentata, uh, the, a silver thatch palm. Um, and it's an exquisite place. It's, it's just barely above water. And you imagine what happened during the recent hurricane there, that this island was awash in salt water. And, and all of these plants are adapted to survive this tremendous stress. And they are just, they're human sized. I mean, one of the things about palms that I think people respond to is they have a vaguely anthropomorphic shape. They have this trunk and they have this crown. And, and we can almost see ourselves in them, especially when they're of that stature uh, of, of that Cocothrinex argentata, uh, where they don't get much more than about 10 feet tall. And you can, you can sort of tuck yourself underneath the crown and get out of that roasting subtropical sun. And just knowing that they have survived for millennia in this mm -hmm. very delicate ecosystem, uh, a really poignant experience was photographing there. Um, and to me, that's an inspiration for design as well. I don't, uh, one of the photographs in the book that I insisted on was seeing the palms, the native desert palms, with the several different deciduous trees in, in fall color, the uh, California sycamore, the willows, the poplars or cottonwoods, um, all of them dropping their leaves around these evergreen palm trees in their commingled Thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Jason Deweese has spent his life enjoying, studying, and advocating for the plant family we know as palms. In his new book, Design with Palms, he provides a history, a love letter, and a tool for really seeing what a palm can do in a landscape that other plants can't do. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust and you. 
Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music by Matt Schiltz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.